0: last week we put our energy towards figuring out not only if it was likely that robert and christian were heading south down highway 74 at 7 13 pm but more importantly was it even possible the answer to both appears to be a resounding no based on our expert analysis which relied on the state's experts drive test robert's phone had to be east of the intersection of highway 111 and 74 when it received that call Knowing that, today we're going to dig a little deeper. We're going to look at the sector data as a whole and try to determine what it's telling us and who knew about it prior to the trial. This is Season 12, Episode 46 The Route. The Ford Ranger, a vehicle for all terrains and every passion. It's a workmate, a playmate, and to its drivers, a soulmate. So how do you improve the Ford Ranger? You go all in. The all-new Ford Ranger, the UK's best-selling pickup. Now available with rear bumper steps, tailgate workbench, and enlarged load box that can fit a Euro pallet. Go break it in. Search all new Ford Ranger. Ford Pro, driving productivity. According to SMMT data, features may be optional extras with additional cost. There's been a lot of talk this week about who knew that the sector data existed. Did the defense know about it and hide that fact because it hurt their case? Or did the prosecution know about it and do the same? Or both? Well, let's start out with me reading to you exactly how the stipulation was worded, from the transcript. Quote, call sector data was not specifically requested or obtained from Verizon Wireless when law enforcement originally requested cell phone records in 2006. Those call sector data records for September of 2006 are no longer stored by Verizon and are therefore no longer available. The first thing I noticed is how carefully this stipulation is worded. It's almost true. Almost. What the stipulation should have said, if both sides actually thought there was no sector data, is that the sector data was not requested from Verizon, it's no longer stored by them, and therefore is no longer available. But look at how carefully the words are chosen. The records were not specifically requested when the records were originally requested in 2006. That's actually true. The sector data wasn't requested or obtained in 2006 when LeClaire originally requested the phone records. They were requested by Detective Willis in 2007. That was no accident. But here's the part that's not true. The stipulation says that the sector data is, quote, no longer available that is a lie. Not only was it available when the stipulation was written, but both parties had it in their possession. So what does that mean? Did the state know about it? Did the defense? Did they collude together to suppress this key evidence? Well, first let's look at who benefited from the lie. It wasn't the defense. As we've learned, this was not complicated at all. I, a layman, was easily able to explain the data in a way that you all understood, and that was easily explained and confirmed by an expert. I've had people tell me that maybe they decided not to use it because it was only 2006 and cell phone evidence wasn't really well understood at that point, but that's nonsense. People have been testifying about location data in cell phones. It was done in Adnan's case in 2000, in court, six years before this crime occurred, and 18 years before this trial happened. So that argument holds no water. And what we've learned is that the data absolutely helps the defense. If the sector data was on the table, the state would not have been able to argue that Robert and Christian were on their way to Becky's house, based on the phone records, And they would have been left holding the bag trying to explain away this exculpatory evidence. The state is the party that benefited from the lie. So the question becomes, did they get lucky or was it intentional? And also, is it possible that the defense was part of the deception? I don't believe they were, and here's why. All you have to do is look at the cross-examination of Leclerc. The state again carefully chooses their words to have Leclerc testify that he did not request the sector data. But when the defense gets up, they go right for the throat. During Cross, Leclerc isn't just asked if he requested the data, which he could easily and truthfully answer no to. The defense follows up with, since you were the lead investigator, did anyone request the data on your behalf? And here, Leclerc is not so forthcoming. He's asked that question more than once, and we get the classic, not-to-my-knowledge, not-that-I-recall type responses. He won't commit and just say, no, no one requested the sector data. And that's why I'm convinced that the defense truly didn't know the sector data existed. Not only would it have benefited them, but they asked the questions that could have ruined the entire scheme. In order to keep the judge and the jury in the dark about the sector data, Leclerc would have had to either perjure himself or do what he did and provide a non-committal answer. And him answering the way that he did indicates to me that he was in on it, which again makes it seem pretty clear that so was the state. Continuing on, there are a few more indicators that the state knew what they were doing. First and foremost, in last week's episode, I said that the state read and analyzed the reports, And a couple listeners called me out on that because they say there's no proof that they read it. But I'm not so sure that's true. In the reply by Verizon, where they explain how they're sending the data, they say that they were unable to send an electronic version of the sector data, so they had to print it all out and then mail it. And yet, it's an electronic version that they have included in the discovery file. So that means that at the very least, the state had to have received the paper records take the time to scan them in, put them into the file, and assign Bates numbers to them. Now, that's not proof that they actually read the documents. Someone could make the argument that they spent the effort to request the information, received it, and never looked at it. Maybe just had some clerk scan it into the file. That seems pretty unlikely to me, but I can't say it's impossible. But if we look closer at the report it seems even more likely that this info was not only known about, but also that it was reviewed and analyzed. First of all, at the beginning of the report, it says that the sector data was received by investigator Darren Willis. Then the report, including the data, was reviewed by Sergeant Ford, and then it says that a copy was given to, you guessed it, investigator Gary LeClaire. So that's three people at least that touched this document. Three, including the guy that testified that he just can't recall if anyone ever requested it. (music) Lastly, the investigators appeared to have made handwritten notes on the damn report. That's right. On page 5 of the document on our website, you'll see where someone was explaining how the sectors work. They drew all over this page and wrote notes about what the codes mean. So after reviewing all of this, my conclusion is the obvious one. Leclerc knew about this document. We have proof that even though Willis is the one who requested it, Leclerc was personally given a copy of it. At least three officers touched this document. They made notes on it. Someone scanned it and tagged it with Bates numbers, and included it in the discovery. Aki, the prosecutor, carefully worded the stipulation. And on that note, some people have wondered who came up with the verbiage for that stipulation. Well, it had to be the state, in my opinion. The defense couldn't create a stipulation about what the state did. There had to be a conversation about it, and only the state could have, in this case lied, and said that they never requested it. The defense would have no way of knowing that, unless the state told them. So he carefully worded the stipulation to get a little closer to the truth, but still lied, saying that it was unavailable. And then the state carefully crafted their questions about sector data, not only to Gary LeClaire, but also to Bowles. And by the way, I mispronounced this name last week. I'm told that the gladiator expert's name is Gillette, not gietti But the questions to him were also carefully crafted and carefully worded to make it seem like the sector data didn't exist. So when I put all this together, my conclusion is that the state absolutely knew they had it. And if I had to bet, my guess would be that they also had an expert analyze it. And that's why they suppressed it. Because it ruined their narrative. (laughs) Now let's take a look at the sector data as a whole and see if we can determine the actual route that Robert and Christian took that night. If you look on the website, you're going to see a map titled Most Likely Route. It would be a really good idea to have this map in front of you as I explain this. You'll be able to follow along without it, but it'll help a lot. Now when you look at the map, you're going to see that I made coverage arcs for each of the three sectors on three of the relevant towers. What you're going to see is that for Tower 523, I just put a big circle around it. The reason it doesn't have the sectors is because we don't have the azimuth data for that tower. So knowing that, before I begin, I just want to explain what the coverage arcs around the towers are representing. That is not the actual dominant coverage area for the sectors. What I did was take the azimuth of each sector and create a 120-degree arc. 60 degrees on either side of the azimuth. I did that because that's generally about the area that these sectors are designed to cover. A circle is 360 degrees. The towers have three antennas. Each is designed to cover about a third of the area around the tower. Now, you'll notice on some of these, that's not exactly accurate because there's mountains or there's nothing on the other side of the tower to cover, so they condense all three and point them all kind of towards the same direction. But generally speaking, they're made to cover about 120 degrees. So this map is only representing a generality about where these sectors will cover. There are lots of factors that can affect which sector a phone connects to. And in most cases, there's overlapping coverage. In the Gladiator report on the website, you'll see where Gillette mapped out the dominant coverage areas. But there's a couple things you need to realize about that too. When he shows the dominant coverage area of a sector, he's showing the dominant coverage area for that sector in relation to that tower, meaning like 705 Sector 1, the dominant coverage area, means if you're connected to 705, Tower 705, that you're going to be connected to that particular sector in that area but there'll be overlapping dominant coverage areas from other towers. So like Tower 745 could also have a sector with dominant coverage in a certain area. So it's not showing what the dominant coverage is for that location. It's showing the dominant coverage for that location if the phone is connected to that particular tower. I hope that makes sense. And it's also worth noting that you need to realize when you're looking at Gillette's maps of the coverage, that he's not representing all of the coverage in the valley. If you only look at his drive test coverage maps, then half the valley would have zero cell phone coverage. And if that were true, the state would have no case at all because the phones could have been anywhere when they had no coverage. So when you go through all the different maps and look at the areas where he doesn't show any coverage, those are areas from what I'm told and my own experience, because supposedly these towers haven't changed much over the years, You'll still have coverage there, but it's kind of a crapshoot which tower you'll connect to. So what I did is map out the approximate intended coverage of each sector. You're also going to see on that map where I mapped out towers 605 and 665, but I left off the sector coverage arcs. I just did that because it's not relevant to the discussion today because Robert's phone didn't hit any of them, and it just confuses and clutters the map up, so I wanted to make it as clean as possible. So I based the reach of each of these arcs off the sector that we covered last week, Tower 705, Sector 1. I did that because that sector is a microcell with a pretty standard coverage. It's also one of the most important parts of the discussion, so I wanted to make sure I was as accurate as possible with that one. So I used a combination of the Gladiator coverage and the Gladiator dominant coverage test for that sector Confirmed that with the track software's maximum potential range, and I landed on the size arc that you see for all of these sectors. But I do want you to understand that each of these towers has one microcell that is a far greater reach. The angle of the coverage stays the same, but the distance it can provide coverage is much greater for the macrocells. As we discussed last week, Tower 745 Sector 2 is a macrocell with a huge potential range. Now, on Tower 705, Sector 2 is also the macro cell on that tower. It's actually the cell that provides the little bit of coverage that Tower 705 has going down Highway 74. So, said all that to say this. This map depicts the general locations where each sector would cover. just want to be clear that I'm not saying this is exactly where they do cover. With all that in mind... It's important to point out that there are a ton of variables that can affect which cell a phone connects to. And I don't just mean the environment or configuration of the towers, the phones play a role too. Different phones have different antennas. Even the same models of phone have different effectiveness of their antennas based on all kinds of things. So here's an experiment for you. Pay attention over this next week. Whenever you're standing next to someone with the same phone provider as you, take a moment when you can to look at how many bars you both have, how many bars of coverage. See how often you can be standing next to someone. You both have Verizon, say, for example, and one of you has one bar and the other has four. This happened to me two weeks ago with my wife. We both have the exact same model phone and same account. We were out to dinner and she was surfing Instagram on her phone and I had no service, none. I actually had a bit of a fit about it. It didn't make any sense to me why she could have a three-bar signal with good data and I had zero service sitting right next to her. And to be fair, it still doesn't make sense to me other than I've been told you can't expect different phones with different antennas to behave exactly the same. So knowing that, the first thing I did when working on this route is to figure out possibilities that can be eliminated. What do we know couldn't Happen. All right, so first things first, you're going to see on that map a blue route drawn in. Because what I needed to know is how long does it take, before I even got any further with this, to get from Robert Pape's house, where the trip began, to the Sacred Heart Church, where they were supposedly heading. So I punched that into both Google Maps and Apple Maps to come up with the route and the time. Now, there's several different routes that we can take to get there, but I think you'll all agree when you see how the cell phone data works that the route they took was heading south on Highway 111 and then turning east on Fred Waring. That would be the intended route to get to the Sacred Heart Church. But more importantly, what I wanted to know in order to fill in all of this information is how long that trip takes. And I got ranges depending on the times of day that I put it in because it's based on traffic and things like that. That it's right around 20 minutes. I've, I've had one that said it could take as little as 19 minutes. Some that say it would take as long as 25 minutes. The average seems to be right around 20 minutes to get from Robert's House to the Sacred Heart Church. And as I started punching through the different locations, that all tracks. That makes sense. So that's what I'm basing all of this off of. That blue route that you see on the map. That's a 20-minute route. So as we move that direction, we start analyzing the route. As I said, the first thing that I needed to do is figure out where could they have not been? Where can we rule out as not a possibility? So first, let's circle back to the trip down Highway 74 that the state proposed. They already heard last week several reasons why we can know pretty certainly they weren't on Highway 74, But now I can tell you that we can add in a few more reasons why I can be 100% absolutely confirmed, positive, that's not the case. And the reason is when we tie in Christian's calls. So Christian connected to Tower 523 at 709 and 710, which we'll get into in a minute. Now, we don't have sector data for Christian. So we don't know which sector he connected to, and we also don't know the final cell face of either of those calls, if the, if the call had switched to another cell. But we know that at 7.09, and let's really focus in on at 7.10, he connected to Tower 523, which is the tower out to the east side of the valley out by Highway 10. Well, when we look at the map, Tower 523 does have some extremely spotty coverage, but in a couple of places on Highway 74. Which is kind of weird because that's a long ways away. So it has to be a macro cell. And I believe that it is because in Gillette's report, he says that he found coverage for 523. Again, tiny little spots on Highway 74 up to 12 and a half miles away from the tower. So I needed to look at where could Christian have been to connect to Tower 523? Well, when you look at the map, you can see the first place on Highway 74 where 523 has any coverage, and it's a solid seven, eight miles away, is right near Tower 745 there at Bighorn. And there's a little blip there. So first of all, there's a little bit of a problem. If that's the place he connected, and you'll see as I go through the rest of this, that if he connected to Tower 523 on Highway 74, it would have had to have been right there at 709 and 710. So The first problem is... There's two phone calls there over two minutes where he's connected to Tower 523, but there's only a tiny little blip of coverage right there. So already, I don't think there's enough coverage for him to have made both those phone calls and still connect to 523. Also, there's the whole what would happen and what could happen. Yes, he could have connected to 523 there. And as I mentioned, there's lots of different factors, so it's possible. But he would have been sitting right next to Tower 745, where he's at Tower 745, Sector 3 has dominant coverage shooting straight north on Highway 74. It's literally what that tower was designed to do was cover that section of 74. And then south of the tower, you have Sector 2, which shoots straight down the south end of Highway 74. And then you have Tower 705, Sector 2, that also has pretty good coverage through that stretch of Highway 74. So the idea that instead his phone would connect to Tower 523 that's almost eight miles away seems unlikely, but it is possible. But what I'm not sure is possible is that there's enough coverage of 523 in that little bitty spot for him to have made two phone calls. And stay on that tower, or at least hit that tower for both of them. But that's not my point here. The larger point is three minutes after the 710 call, Robert connected to Tower 705, Sector 1. That's what we covered last week. Tower 705, Sector 1 has zero, and I don't mean dominant not even potential, does not have the range or possibility of covering anywhere on Highway 74 south of that tower. So the sequence is a massive problem. It's not a problem. It disproves the entire thing. So let me try to restate this and clarify it as, as simple as possible. If the route was Robert and Christian turned south on Highway 74 for Christian to have hit tower 523 at 709 and at 710, he would have had to have been right next to the tower at Bighorn. That's the only place where 523, it's the first place on Highway 74 where 523 has coverage. If somehow he managed to make both of those calls and stay connected to that tower while they're driving south, if you track down three minutes further down Highway 74, Well, then we have Robert connected to Tower 705, Sector 1, which is the sector that faces east-southeast from Tower 705, which is north and east of the entrance to Highway 74. We've, again, in several different ways, have shown that tower, that sector, does not have any coverage on 74 at all, actually but doesn't even have the potential for coverage south of the Tower 745 location. So there's no way Christian could have been right around that Tower 745 connected to 523 at 710, and then Robert connect to Tower 705 Sector 1 three minutes later. He would have been miles and miles past the potential coverage there. So when you take everything we learned last week, the stuff we've talked about today, and this problem with the sequence, you can rule out that they were driving south on 74. So in the scenario that I'm going to lay out, that's not a potential scenario. It can't be. It's not possible. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. So that's one thing we can rule out. When they left Robert's house, they headed down 111 they did not turn south on highway 74 we know that another scenario is country club drive so if you're looking at the map when you start to head south from Robert and Christian's house the first major road they come to after they get they take Frank Sinatra to get on 111 head 111 south the first major intersection they come to that runs to the east is country club drive and i've had suggested to me by listeners a few people that, well, maybe they turned that way, uh, east on Country Club, intending to then go south on Cook to get down to Sacred Heart. That can also be ruled out. Uh, I'll show you even more so why later, but the big thing is we have calls at 7.05, where Robert is connected to Tower 7.05. This gets a little confusing, so at 7.05 p.m., he connected to Tower 7.05, Sector 2. That sector points west-southwest and covers 111, but does not cover to the north. That's the sector that covers all the way down to the south and covers a bunch of Highway 74. But he connects there at 7.05 on both the initial and final cell face, And then again at 7.06, Sam Gayer calls him back and he answers the phone. And they talk for two and a half minutes. And the final cell face is still Tower 705, Sector 2. So you got from 705 to around 708 where Robert's moving on the phone and he stays in the coverage area of Tower 705, Sector 2. Well, Country Club is like three miles, two miles to the north of 705. So there's no way Robert would have been connected to Sector 2 if he was heading east on Country Club. He would have been connected, most likely to Sector 3, which is the north-facing sector. Now, is it possible that he could grab a tower or grab a cell there for for a couple seconds? Yeah, but he didn't. He stayed on Sector 2 for that entire time. There's no way that would happen if he was heading east on Country Club, north of the tower. So we can rule that out. So we're starting to narrow this stuff down. They couldn't have turned and went south on 74. They couldn't have turned and went east on country club. So now let's back up now that we know what they couldn't do and take a look at what I think they did. When we look at the sector data, we actually have a really good idea. As a matter of fact, we know when the ball got rolling on that night. And I say that because... If we look at Christian's phone, again, we don't have sector data, but we have tower coverage, which at least one of the towers that he connected to. Christian is connected to Tower 665, which is just a couple miles away from his house uh, and just east of Highway 10. So his house is kind of covered by Tower 88 and Tower 665. Christian is using his phone at 548, 558, 603, 618, and 622. All of those calls are connected to 665, which is the one on the east side of Highway 10, north of Christian's house. So we can be pretty sure that from 548 to 622, Christian is at home, stationary, not moving, staying on the same tower the whole time. Same time, if we jump down to Robert's house, which is a few miles, about five miles south of Christian's, he's real close to Tower 707. And we see Robert used his phone at 559, 603, 614, and 619. So from 559 to 619, Robert, all of those calls, the initial and final cell face, are all Tower 707, Sector 1, which is the sector that should cover his house. So we can be pretty sure that Robert was home during that time, that he was stationary, he was sitting in that covered zone. So we got Robert's last call at 6:19 while he's at home and then Christian's last call is at 6:22 when he's at home. We got a little bit of a dark area, but we know when Christian got moving. At 6:45, Christian makes a call and connects to tower 707. That is out of the range of his house and it's the tower that is in the range of Robert's house. So he's on the move now. So we know at 6:45 p.m. Christian has left his house and he's en route to Robert's house. He's somewhere in the coverage area, Tower 707. Unfortunately, we don't have the sector data for him, so we don't know which sector, but it's a straight shot down Date Palm, just probably the route that he took. So I marked on the map where it says C645, about where I think he probably was at 645. That's a generality. We also know when Robert got moving. As I mentioned, we have all those calls, 559, 603, 614, 619 where he's stationary in 707 Sector 1. But then, Becky calls Robert at 653, and it was a great time for her to call for us to start piecing this together. Because now we know Robert and Christian are on the move by 653. So where Robert's house is at, you have to first drive north and then west to get out to Highway 111 to head south. Well, if you look on this map, you'll see as you go north and then west, you get really close to the line between Sectors 1 and Sectors 3 of Tower 707. In that 653 call, Robert connects on the initial and final cell face to Tower 707, Sector 3. Remember, his house is Sector 1, and at 653, he connects to Sector 3, north of his house, and if, again, if you're looking at the map, you'll see why that's relevant. Because there's only one little part of this route where he likely would have made that connection. And that's just maybe a mile from his house starting to head out towards Highway 111. So we know at 653, they had left Robert's house and were up in that direction. So by my estimation, they should have left Robert's house probably at about 650. So, knowing that the route to Sacred Heart is about 20 minutes, that means they should have got to Sacred Heart around 710 if they had just went there. So, now we have a few more times. We've got another incoming call from Becky at 659, where Robert connects on both sides to Tower 707, Sector 1, which covers Highway 111 as he heads south from his house. Robert doesn't pick up that call, and then at 7 o'clock, he calls 411 to get the phone number for Sacred Heart. There he's still connected to 707 Sector 1 on both ends of it. And then one minute later, at 701, Robert makes the call to Sacred Heart. And this call is one of the most helpful on this route. Because it's an outgoing call, which means you can use the initial and the final cell face for location. Because on an outgoing call, that should show you movement. And on the initial cell face, the call he first connected to when he started making that call, and it's only a 33-second call, he connects to 707 Sector 1, which is the one he came from. But the final cell face, the sector that the call switched to, is Tower 705 Sector 2. So if you're looking at the map, you'll see where I put an R for a call from Robert's phone at 7:01 p.m. and i have it placed right directly between the coverage zones for tower 705 sector 2 and tower 707 sector 1. Now, that's not exact, but that's pretty damn close. We can be pretty comfortable saying that at 7:01 they were somewhere right in that location, somewhere where at the beginning of the call he would hit tower 707 sector 1. And by the end of the call, 30 seconds later, 33 seconds later, that he would hit Tower 705, Sector 2. So when you look at the map, I placed that right there. And then I routed from his house to that location to see about how long that would take. Should take about 10 or 11 minutes. And if he left his house at 6.50, that would be at about 7 o'clock or 7.01 is when he would be to that location. So that all fits. So that's kind of an anchor point for us. At 7.01 p.m., I'm fairly confident that Robert was already past Country Club and was southeast of it, heading down 111, somewhere right in the place where the coverages overlap from Sector 2 of Tower 705 and Sector 1 of Tower 707. As we continue to move down the map, we go about four minutes later And at 7.05 p.m., and this is one of the calls that starts to rule out the country club route, at 7.05, Robert makes a call to Sam Gayer. Initial and final cell face are Tower 705, Sector 2. So if you look on the map, that red area, that's Sector 2, where I placed that call, makes sense. And it also tracks four minutes down the road from where you see the 701 call. At that exact same time, Christian received a call from Becky. All we know from Christian's side is that he was connected to Tower 705 somewhere. So at the same time, they both make a call. They're both connected to 705. On Robert's end, we know he was in Sector 2 the entire time. That's why that location is there. Then we get to the 706 call, which is when you take the seconds in. It's actually less than a minute later. That's when Sam Geyer calls Robert back that call again initiates on tower 705 sector 2 and then it ends still on 705 sector 2 so he's in that sector right there and so if you're not looking at the map we're talking southwest of the 705 tower and northwest of the entrance to highway 74 so this is kind of a critical moment right now when they would have got to that intersection would have been while robert was talking to Sam Gayer on the phone, if they continue down Highway 111. So what you're going to see on the map, you see the blue line that turns east on Fred Waring and ends where it says SH, that's Sacred Heart Church. That's the route that they would have taken to get to the church. But if you look back on the route at 701, when they were back further up 111, they had learned there that there was no church. So that's when they knew they weren't going to church. So I don't think they actually would have turned on Fred Waring. I think they would have just continued straight. I'm going to break this down a little why in just a minute here. So the red dotted line you see is what I think they did, which is just continue on Highway 111. You have to remember what's going on in the car right now. You can look at a map and go, well, the smart thing to do would be turn on Fred Waring and then head north on Monterey. But they were in the middle of a phone call right then. I don't think they had an exact plan. The plan was to go to the church, so I So think they just kept driving. And as far as the timing of where they were at before they got out of the coverage area of 705 Sector 2, you got to look what's going on there. When they're going down 111, when he gets on the call, right after that, they come to Fred Waring, there's a stoplight there. If they continue down 111, they get to the intersection of 111 and 74, there's another stoplight there. So there's two places that could stop them to slow them down a little bit right there. So the route that I've come up with is at 7:06 when Sam Gayer calls and Robert talks to him for two and a half minutes. They're just continuing down 111 at that point. Now the next call is Christian's. It's 7:09. That's where he called Becky and then hung up on her after one second. Now you'll see where I marked the C in 7:09. That's based on timing where I think about they would have been on their route. The problem with that call and the next one is we don't have sector data. We don't know if he stayed on 523. We don't know which sector he was connected to. We don't know if he switched over on either of these calls to say, what I think probably would have happened is switch over to 705 sector one. All we know is that he made a connection to 523. And where those are marked on the map, they fall within the sector one coverage area that I drew out for 705. One. But when you look at the gladiator map for dominant coverage, they're past the dominant coverage area for sector one of 705. They're kind of in the no man's land there. So it's definitely reasonable to think that he could connect to tower 523. 523 is right there in the direction he's going, it's just off to the east. We know that he didn't connect to 745 going the other way. And we've already disproven the idea that he could have connected to the little spot on Highway 74. Because the next call disproves that. So the calls to to and from Christian's phone, I placed there at 709 and 710, going down 111, and then as they turn north on Cook Street to head back to Christian's house. I'm just pointing out that those two calls are tricky because we don't have all the information. All we know is that they were connected to Tower 523. Then three minutes later, so as they would go north, there would have been the light there, At uh, Cook and Highway 111, they're going to come up to another light at Fred Waring and 111 as they continue north at 713. Robert gets the incoming call, and that's the call that we discussed at length last week where he was in the dominant coverage area connected to Tower 705, Sector 1, which is exactly where you see it on this map. And then the rest of the route, I drew a red line. Where Cook goes north up to Highway 10, take Highway 10 up to Ramon, Ramon to date Palm, and the back to Christian's house. That's just the route I think they may have taken. We don't have any cell coverage. We don't have any phones, no pings, nothing to work with. So that's just that's just an estimate. Where the times are, that is the only route that I can come up with that fits all of the cell data. They couldn't have went east on Country Club. They couldn't have went south on 74. This is the only route that works. As we said last week, that they passed the turn onto Highway 74, continued east, and then went up north to the house. If you weren't looking at the map as I went through this, go to the website and look at it. I'll also post it on social media. Because this this I spent the better part of a week putting this together, looking at every possible scenario and every single connection. I encourage any and all of you to look at these maps, look at all of this data, and see if you can come up with a different route. I'm very open to different possibilities, but in my opinion, based on everything we know, and based on the initial and final cell-face connections of Robert's phone for every call, and the tower connections of Christian's phone, I believe this route is the only possible route they could have taken. Which is, they leave Robert's house, they go to Highway 111, they head south on 111. At 701, they realize there's no church. They keep driving. I think they're having a discussion at that point because since Christian's been in the car with Robert, Becky's already called Robert twice at 653 and at 659. Right after that, Robert calls 411. He calls the church at 701. There had to be a discussion there. And then at 705, As Robert's trying to call Sam Gayer about the paintball gun, four minutes after they found out they weren't going to church, think about that, Becky tried calling Christian, and then right when they maybe would be having a conversation about that, at 7.06, Sam calls Robert back, and they talk for two and a half minutes about the paintball gun. And then at that point, they've moved east past the entrance to Highway 74. And then we've got Christian at 7.09 trying to call Becky and then hanging up. So it's like right after Robert gets off the phone with Sam, Christian starts to call Becky, hangs up, and then Becky tries to call him back. He ignores it. Three minutes later, Becky tries to call Robert. At this point, they're heading north on Cook, heading back to Christian's. Robert ignores that call. The phones get shut off, and they're dark for the rest of the night. (laughs) all right i'm hoping that that last segment was clear this is definitely an episode where i would have much rather had these pictures in front of you and could show you visually it's very difficult to describe all that without the visual aid so i hope a lot of you were looking at that we'll talk much more about it in this week's follow-up but hopefully that was clear to at least most of you Before I close out today, the last thing I want to do is respond to the folks that are insisting that Gillette's Gladiator Report is the gold standard and it is all that we should be looking at. Again, as I've said multiple times, that was the map that Mike Dowd, our expert, used to determine Robert's location. But if we're looking, I spent a lot of time this week looking at the Gladiator Report, which is up on our website in its entirety for you to look at. But I want to draw your attention to page 47 of that very report. Something that I think is another mistake the defense made. So in the Gladiator Report, he shows all these maps. This is the coverage for Tower 523, the coverage for 705, 707. Here's the dominant sector coverage for each of these. Here's where they have overlapping coverage. There's all this stuff. And there's huge holes through the whole valley. But on this page, we finally get his conclusion. And on the page, you see a map that shows color blobs all over the entire valley as well as coverage all the way down 74 and even in the Pinion Pines area. I have no idea how to read any of it. There are so many colors, it's all blurred together. But this is what the state's expert wrote in their report. Quote, This map depicts an overlay for the Verizon coverage footprint for all of the CDMA channels and frequencies that Verizon had in 2006. This data was collected in 2016, but the network configuration in 2016 has not changed from existing cells in 2006, according to Verizon engineers. The Verizon cell coverage footprint data shows that we had a dominant Verizon cell coverage south on Highway 74 up towards the crime scene in 2006. And here's the big one. All this work, all of this data, the drive test, the report, it all comes down to this. Here's Gary Gillette's conclusion in his report that he turned into the state. Quote, Summary conclusion. This would indicate that both Robert Pape and Christian Smith's phones were in fact turned off. During the inactive period, on 917, from 709 p.m. to 10-23 p.m., around the times of the murders, all calls went to voicemail. Let me repeat what the state's expert concluded after all of this testing. This would indicate that both Robert Pape and Christian Smith's phones were in fact and it's written in his report in bold letters, turned off during the inactive dark period. Isn't that interesting that the state made the argument that the reason that Robert and Christian had no service was because they were up in Pinion Pines where there was no service when their expert's conclusion was the exact opposite. They didn't have coverage because their phones were turned off Truth and Justice is an NBI studios production and is distributed by Wondery, edited by Kelly Barron's Brink and Sound Engineered by Shane Yoder. All music for the show was created, composed, and scored by PutThemInASong.com, who also mixed and mastered this episode. All of our fonts across all of our logos and banners were created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design, and you can find more of Tate's work on Etsy. Thank you to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website To financially support the show, the best thing you can do is just go to patreon.com truthandjustice. You'll not only be supporting the show, but you'll get something in return. On Patreon, you can pledge as little as $3 a month, and we have reward levels. For just $5 a month, you get access to ad-free versions of all of our episodes and behind-the-scenes bonus video content every week. Then other reward levels include t-shirts, hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. Just go to patreon.com truthandjustice. You can also do us a huge favor by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support us by supporting the brands that sponsor this program. If you have a new case that you'd like us to consider for future seasons, you can submit your cases on our website, truthandjusticepod.com. Just click on the case submission button and fill out the form. And the most important thing that you can do is to engage in our investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page on Facebook. And for all you tweeters out there, you can connect with us on Twitter at TruthJusticePod. And I can be found personally on all forms of social media at BobRuff Truth. And don't forget that we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, or tips on our cases. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However, you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, I'm signing off. I'm Bob Ruff, and this has been Truth and Justice. <laughs>